This is Jim Kaplan. I'm the past president for five years of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association, and we're going to talk today about uh, Aaron Burr and his adventures and treason trial. A great Lower Manhattan figure, in a sense, at least where he began. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Does the Trump impeachment trial recall Aaron Burr's acquittal in an 1807 treason trial? That's our topic. Frequent contributor Jim Kaplan joins us with a story about a controversial figure in American history, Aaron Burr. Jim Kaplan of New Rochelle, New York, an attorney based in New York City, a founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. His article on Aaron Burr recently appeared in New York Almanac. How does Aaron Burr compare with uh, Donald Trump, Jim? Well, I think there are many uh, uh, very significant comparisons. Former Vice President Aaron Burr, whose personality was arguably not dissimilar from Donald Trump, of course, I didn't know him, but he was tried and acquitted of treason in 1807. Burr's forceful, arrogant, and in certain respects unusual and unconventional personality, as well as his significant success in achieving high political office, was in many ways very similar to what I perceived Donald Trump to be. Both uh, Burr and Trump, in certain respects, championed anti-establishment ideas, if you want to call them that, and sought a political base of poorer working people, despite their upper-class birth and background. Mm -hmm. Both of their early careers were in New York City. Uh, Both were well-known and had some success on Wall Street. And it was often alleged that Burr, despite his significant uh, financial standing, was frequently in financial difficulty because of his uh, tendency to overspend. So in well, that regard, me... I think uh, uh, Burr was very similar uh, 200 years earlier or more to Donald Trump. A little bit more about Aaron Burr. What were his early days? What were his roots? Burr was the orphaned grandson of Jonathan Edwards a prominent Massachusetts clergyman, and his father was the president of what is today Princeton University. So he came from really a blue-chip background. At the age of four, however, his parents died, and he was placed under the care of his uncle, Timothy Edwards, who was a strict New Jersey clergyman from whom he tried to run away at the age of 10. He later returned and entered Princeton Uh, what today is Princeton University, at age 13 and graduated in 1772. Uh, Like Alexander Hamilton, with whom we would have a fateful encounter uh, some years later in 1804, as a young man he was a, a sort of Revolutionary War hero. He was credited with having attempted to rescue the body of General Richard Montgomery after the in which the Americans almost took over Canada, but failed. Uh, After the war, Burr returned to New York City, where he practiced law on Wall Street, as did Alexander Hamilton, and he was elected to the state legislature in 1784 as part of a wave of Revolutionary War heroes who began to redistribute the land of former Tories uh, to Revolutionary War soldiers, Marinus Willett was a key figure, the then sheriff was a key figure in this effort. Burr later served as New York State's Attorney General Mm. while in his early 30s. 
after the bitterly contested fight over the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in 1709, however, the more conservative party, led by Hamilton and his father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, as well as John Jay, gained the upper hand in politics in the city of New York. I understand that New York's seizure of Tory lands uh, for American veterans was halted because of opposition from the Federalists and their allies. Did Burr oppose this change in direction? He most certainly did. He became one of the leading opponents of the Federalist policy of restoring land that had been seized from former Tories to the Tories themselves. Uh, that was required by the U.S. Constitution, the provision that said no state shall impair the obligation of contract. That implemented the guarantee in the Treaty of Paris that the Tory land rights would be respected, which was directly contrary to uh, New York State forfeiture laws. Uh, Burr allied himself with a civic and later political organization of many Revolutionary War enlisted men called the Tammany Society, which was in opposition to this increasingly conservative tendency in New York politics and the attempts to uh, undo the redistribution of land. Uh, in the 1790s, the Tammany Society leaders would form an alliance with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the hopes of ultimately wresting control of the, pre of the presidency from uh, uh, the Federalist and particularly after 1796, the presidency of John Adams. Mm -hmm. Now, we come to the election of uh, 1800, Burr campaigned for candidates for the New York State Legislature who would support a different political party, the Democrat Republicans, who supported Thomas Jefferson for president. And back then, the legislature chose the state's presidential electors. What happened there? What happened was that Burr, through careful political organization with the Tammany Society, who was one of their key strategists, was able effectively to win in the local elections for state assembly in New York City. And that was something of an upset, uh, it, because uh, New York City had previously been considered a staunchly Federalist area uh, since the U.S. Constitution ratification. When Burr and the, the Democrat, what is really the forerunner of today's Democratic Party, won significantly in the legislative election vote, New York voted in the 1800 presidential election uh, to, for electors pledged to Thomas Jefferson, and thus it voted with Virginia and most of the southern and western states for Jefferson against the New England states who voted for John Adams. So he was extremely inferential. Presidential election of mm -hmm. 1800 and then the election of uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. No. And as a result of his efforts on behalf of Jefferson, Aaron Burr was offered the party's vice presidential nomination. What happened then? Yes, he, he was, uh, you know, obviously he was a key figure in Jefferson's election, and the Democratic Party offered him and to be run as the, as the vice president uh, with uh, Jefferson. But uh, under the rules... As for electing the president at the time under the U.S. Constitution, the individual with the highest number 
of electoral votes would be elected president, and the individual with the next highest number would be vice president. Uh, that worked out when uh, uh, Washington was elected president, and then Adams was second, therefore he was, or Jefferson was second first, and then Adams was second, and he was vice president. But if you had a party where political factions ran two candidates jointly, which is what had developed by 1800 for president and vice president, they might both receive the same number of votes. And this is exactly what happened when Vice President Thomas Jefferson counted the 1,800 electoral votes. He and Burr had an equal number, 72 votes each. And under the rules of the Constitution at the time, the uh, election, if there was a tie, was thrown into the House of Representatives, where each state would have a single vote. At first, Burr announced that he would accept Jefferson elections because he had clearly been subordinate in the election. However, as the election went into the House, some of Burr's associates and perhaps some Federalists indicated they might be able to swing their votes to Burr and have him elected president. Uh, and there were something like 27 tie votes. So this was, uh, uh, and Burr didn't say anything. Finally, Alexander Hamilton, who'd known Burr well from their activities in uh, New York City, who was a leading Federalist, announced to his colleagues that notwithstanding his disdain for Jefferson, he thought Burr was an unprincipled man and not worthy of the presidency. Hamilton thus urged all Federalists to vote for Jefferson, and Jefferson was elected president, with Burr becoming vice president. Now, Burr's uh, attempted betrayal of uh, Jefferson uh, did not endear him to Mr. Jefferson or his administration, and he was kept from controlling federal patronage in the city of New York. However, Burr retained his position as vice president, presiding over the Senate, including impeachment of federal judges. Uh, that brought him, to a limited extent, back into the good graces of Jefferson, eliminate as many federal judges as possible. So, uh, you know, it's a kind of a complicated right. Story. situation. Can you explain what led to Aaron Burr's duel uh, with Alexander Hamilton? Well, there certainly was no love lost because of, uh, between Burr and Hamilton. They were rivals in politics. It says they were rivals in law and, and disliked each other intensely personally. Uh, at the end of his term as vice president in 1804, Burr ran for governor of New York, but was defeated by the much less well-known Morgan Lewis. Hamilton in the, and the Federalists in 1804 attacked Burr mercilessly in that campaign. And Hamilton was quoted as saying that Burr was a dangerous man who should not be trusted with the governor's office. He further stated in a letter in, from, in Albany that Hamilton, he alleged that others could offer a, quote, still more despicable opinion of Burr. <laughs> now, now, that may not seem like uh, too bad these days, but Burr apparently viewed this as an attack on his honor and demanded that Hamilton retract this attack or face him in a duel. And both Burr and Hamilton felt that their reputations required that they follow through on this challenge. Uh, uh, and in any event, most duels didn't actually result in death, as they were often settled by negotiation. But dueling was kind of on the way out, particularly in New York, and uh, you know, not considered to be uh, 
the best thing, one might say. Mm -hmm. uh, Hamilton could have simply refused, as a number of his contemporaries did when faced with the same dilemma, including Benjamin Franklin, uh, but uh, uh, he insisted, and uh, uh, Burr insisted, that they carry out this uh, somewhat unusual at the time uh, challenge for a, a duel. Uh, uh, in fact, Burr and Hamelin met a week before the duel, on July 4th, 1804, at the Society of Cincinnati's dinner at, at uh, Francis Tavern in Manhattan, which is still there, and I encourage you people to go there. Uh, the artist Jonathan Trumbull, a participant at the dinner, stated that Burr was silent, gloomy, and sour, while Hamilton entered with glee into all the gaiety of a convivial party and even sang an old military song. Of course, people didn't know that there was going to be a duel uh, uh, the, the next week. Really? Uh, so what happened in the duel itself? July 11th, 1804, Hamilton and Burr and their seconds went to Weehawken, New Jersey, which was the supposed dueling ground, Burr brought with him a number of people, including, by the way, Marinus Willett, who was a, sort of allied with him in politics, among others, as an observer. Uh, uh, Willett, as your readers may know, served a significant portion of the Revolutionary War fighting in the Mohawk Valley and is uh, well known as the Willett uh, 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 Visitor Center at Fort Stanwix. Uh, Hamilton apparently drew the right to shoot first, and there is a dispute as to whether he deliberately fired into the air, as he claimed he was going to in a posthumous letter to his wife, or whether he actually shot and missed. But uh, Burr, who also later claimed, would claim he never had intended to kill Hamilton, fired at Hamilton, shot him in his abdomen, abdomen and inflicted a mortal wound from which Hamilton died the next day. Public opinion almost immediately swung against Burr, who was viewed as an aggressor, and all of New York was horrified that its two leading political figures would fight a duel. Uh, there was an elaborate funeral down Broadway, which served to solidify Hamilton's reputation as one of the city's great historical figures. Mm -hmm. uh, Burr was indicted for murder in New York County and in New Jersey, mm -hmm. and he fled to Washington, D.C. and Virginia, where he apparently was able to continue to serve as vice president. When his term expired, he was replaced by the Jefferson Democrats by George Clinton. Well, what happens next for Aaron Burr? What were his misadventures in the West? Well, since Burr could not return to uh, New York and was really persona non grata in the Northeast, uh, he uh, moved to the South, uh, to Virginia, where apparently having killed the Federalist uh, and a uh, uh, not-too-well-liked figure like Alexander Hamilton in a duel was not as great a political disability as it was in New York. Hmm. In fact, in 1805, at a reception in Virginia, he was celebrated for his uh, uh, many activities. Uh, furthermore, uh, in addition, it appears that uh, it's later come out that even before his uh, term as vice president had expired, he reportedly contacted the English ambassador and the Spanish ambassadors with a plan to raise a force that could separate Western territories from the United States and establish a new country 
under either the English or independent control in which he would have a major role. Mm. Uh, Burr hoped to assemble a force of land-hungry adventurers, including disaffected veterans of the Revolution. You have to realize it was only uh, 20 years since the Revolution, or 30 years, and he had hoped to uh, occupy this territory west of uh, uh, in the western part of the, the country and either establish a state or a loose Spanish or French principality in which he might be the leader. Uh, the profits of this project, which could have been substantial for the people who engaged in it, in terms of getting land, uh, would help him to pay his uh, numerous debts. Now, in formulating this plan, Burr met a kindred soul named James Wilkinson. Wilkinson uh, had been a medical student from an old Maryland family who had dropped out to join the Revolution. He was roughly Burr's and Hamilton's age, or Hamilton, of course. Mm -hmm. And beginning in May uh, uh, 1805, Burr undertook an extensive trip through the Ohio Valley to uh, get this project going, and he was relatively well received by a number of local political figures, which included Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson, for whom his having killed Hamilton was in many ways considered an asset, not a liability. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the people uh, Burr met with was a man named Herman Blennerhassett, an Anglo-Irish lawyer and politician who owned the land in the Ohio River that could serve as a staging area for Burr's forces. Now, at the time, uh, Wilkinson was the head of the American Army under Jefferson, but was also, it was later shown, years later, that he was in the pay of the Spanish government. So uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt once referred to him as one of the blackest characters in American history. But anyhow, at the same time, New Jersey Senator Jonathan Dayton, an associate of Burr's, allegedly met with representatives of both the British and Spanish governments seeking financial backing for this project. Dayton later claimed that Burr intended, after secession, to launch an attack on Washington, kidnap the president and Congress, and neutralize the U.S. government as a force hostile to these monarchical European powers. Although the Jewish rejected these proposals, the, the Spanish government apparently did provide limited funding for it. Mm. Uh, ironically, while all this was going on, obviously secretly, in 1806, Burr met twice for more than an hour with President Jefferson at the White House to brief the president on his travels through the Louisiana Territory and the West and to appeal to the president to appoint him to a high U.S. government position. Obviously, really? Jefferson didn't take him up on that uh, uh, request. No, what, he, uh, what did Jefferson do? Jefferson, who had heard rumors of Burr's treasonous activity, rejected Burr's request for a federal position, and upon hearing credible reports of Burr's plans from James Wilkinson, his co-conspirator, he had Burr arrested and brought the trial in Richmond, Virginia, for treason. This set up what was considered the trial of the century before John Marshall, a bitter Federalist opponent of Jefferson. It was easily as big, although there wasn't the media at the time, as the, the Trump, second Trump impeachment trial. Uh, the prosecution presented testimony from James Wilkinson, his co-conspirator, so it was uh, 
who had turned state's evidence against him. Wilkinson, in fact, provided a letter allegedly written by Burr in which he outlined the plan to assemble the force to move against New Orleans and the western states. Now, Burr's lawyers, who included the two uh, attorney generals of the United States, Edmund Randolph among them, argued that the definition of treason in the U.S. Constitution was quite narrow and included the requirement that the prosecution show two overt acts in furtherance of the scheme. And there was a question of whether uh, uh, it was uh, free speech. Much to the chagrin of Jefferson, who was said closely to follow the trial, Justice Marshall adopted the defense's narrow interpretation of the charge and ruled that without evidence that Burr had actually been present at Blennerson Island at the exact time of the incitement, of the force that gathered there, the crime of treason had not been proved. In certain mm. respects, it was similar to uh, uh, Trump's defense. That he hadn't actually incited people. The jury thus acquitted Burr. In a sense, that was a big victory for Burr. But everybody, most people in the country, considered that his acquittal was on a widely on a, on a technicality and that he was guilty of insurrection against the United States. And facing a potentially similar charge in Ohio, he fled to Europe for the next five years. Uh, Burr was hardly exonerated. He, he was uh, returned to New York. He had to flee to Europe. He returned to New York in 1812 to resume his law practice after a number of uh, affairs with various women. He was a real ladies' man. He was alleged he married Eliza Jumel, one of the wealthiest women in New York, who was alleged to have been a former prostitute, but was the, at the time the widow of Stephen Jumel, one of the wealthiest men in New York. Uh, he lived in what is now known as the Jumel Mansion in Washington Heights. Uh, and later, Madame Jumel accused Burr, then in his 70s, of having an affair with a servant girl in her 20s and sued for divorce, which became final on the day Burr died in September 1836. Uh, wow. Do we have any more time? Oh, yes, we do. Uh, let me okay. ask you... All right, well, let me, let me state my uh, views of Burr. I think Burr is a fascinating figure. I think he really did a very uh, important role in New York City history, and that he was one of the founders of the Tammany Society, which was much more uh, democratic than the uh, more aristocratic... A federalist, and in many ways, the Democratic Party, and later evidenced by Tammany Hall, and uh, uh, would rule New York City for the past 150 years, up until Al Smith, Francis Perkins, uh, and others. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there was no doubt that the man was guilty of treason. It was later shown that he was consorting with uh, uh, foreign powers against the United States when he was the vice president of the United States and afterwards. So he's a very uh, unusual figure. Uh, I don't know where his head was at, but he uh, obviously was vain and had uh, a great ambition for himself and in many ways great ability. So he's really a very interesting figure in American history. Mm. And in, in certain respects, I believe, will be remembered like, like or is remembered for 200 years. Uh, like Donald Trump, it is said that for 200 years, uh, New Yorkers would never would never name their children Aaron after him, and he uh, really? goes down in history as a as a one of the most 
uh, you might say, unfortunate and reviled figures. Your story's been out for some time, at least in the New York Almanac. What's been the reaction to it? Well, I think I got five comments. I actually would have thought I'd got more, but uh, I, I think the, uh, uh, you know, people wanted to know, well, what was his, was he really like Donald Trump? Why did he do what he did? Uh, I mean, he was essentially an upper-class guy by birth. I don't want to say he had psychological problems, but I certainly would think his behavior would. And he also had, in many ways, tremendous political uh, and intellectual ability. He was mm-hmm. supposedly a brilliant lawyer. He, uh, his defense at, uh, at the treason trial at Richmond was excellent. He assembled a, a, a top team, one of the top teams in uh, lawyers in the country, including, uh, as I mentioned, two attorney generals and a uh, fascinating figure. Unfortunately, they weren't no broad media at the time, but he was well known. I mean, they all, his treason trial was covered in the papers. Mm-hmm. And just one, uh, I don't know, it's a technical question, that, that Burr and Hamilton fought their duel in New Jersey. Why was that? Why did they go over there to do it? Well, the dueling grounds at Weehawken were uh, uh, basically was considered where people fought uh, duels. It may have been that uh, dueling was Ill- dueling was illegal in New York. Uh, I later understand uh, that it also quickly became legal in New Jersey. But it might have been that that's where men of uh, upper class men, if you were, who wanted to right. fight duels, would go. Jim, thank you very much for a fascinating story. Our guest on the Historian's Podcast has been attorney and New York City area historian Jim Kaplan, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Here's the story about George Washington. In 2016, author Ed Lengel spoke to a conference organized by the Fort Plain Museum about his book, First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. You said something to the effect that Washington's greatest fear, uh, first I thought you said was death. I said, well, I'm pretty afraid of death. But you said what you actually said was his greatest fear was being in debt. That's right. It was, I think, right next to Thomas Jefferson among those things that he dreaded the most. Uh, it was something that, that came from early childhood and what his mother taught him, uh, that debt was the source of ruin, personal ruin, and also ruin for families, communities, and, and countries as well. So he, he feared that with a passion throughout his life. And he married a wealthy woman. Pardon my ignorance. Was Washington married before he married Martha? Uh, no, he was not. That was his first marriage. Ah, so he married a wealthy woman. He married a wealthy woman. She had been married before. She was a widow. Um, and uh, Martha, da- Martha Dandridge Custis, and uh, she was reputedly the wealthiest uh, widow in Virginia, a very eligible lady, uh, still quite young, uh, in her 20s, um, but she had uh, four children, two of whom had survived to adulthood, uh, but she had a very wealthy estate. You say that uh, she you know, inspected Washington, if you will, and she thought he was a kind of a sober, diligent person. I think he was a good match for her, as well as her being a good match for him, um, because she did have children that she wanted to be cared for, a legacy that she wanted passed down. And she was herself a very intelligent, very sober, very, very uh, dutiful woman. uh, And she expected George to be the same way, and he was. Again, we're talking with Edward Lengel, uh, his book, First Entrepreneur. It's about George Washington. One thing you say he did that 
um, was wise uh, economically is he switched from tobacco, growing tobacco to wheat at Mount Vernon, their estate. That was a huge decision, and it, it absolutely transformed his fortunes. It was the basis of his wealth. Uh, tobacco was, for many reasons, it was very uh, expensive to grow. It was very labor-intensive, and uh, it caused uh, him to fall into debt, like for many other Virginia planters, because it, it was sold within the British colonial system. So moving over to wheat gave him a degree of economic freedom. He could sell in his own account. He could earn cash instead of credit. And it allowed his himself and the people on his estate to become self-sufficient. Uh, and they could grow and produce uh, their own food, their own clothing, uh, and everything else, and sell it as well. Ed Lengel's book about George Washington is called First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.